Good evening, this is Quintus Curtius. Welcome back to the podcast. And the subject of this podcast is going to be masculine virtue, a subject that has been dear to me for many years, ever since I started writing, as readers will know. And for some reason, lately, it's been on my mind. I don't know if it's just been books I've been reading or people I've been interacting with or listening to the news or a combination of these factors, but it's something that's been on my mind. So I wanted to uh, offer some thoughts about that. Offer some thoughts first and then read a recent article that appeared on my site so that uh, viewers who are listening to this podcast in their car or on their headphones or whatever other form can digest it in an easily digestible format. But I'd like to start out by reading a tweet that I put out several days ago that a reader asked me to read. And this is a tweet that went out on... um, Actually, wow, actually it it was a retweet of a tweet I originally put out on July 5th. And I retweeted it this 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 past week it's a quote by C.S. Lewis from his book The Abolition of Man a book which I have not read but the quote is great here and the quote is we make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise we laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst we castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. So obviously what he means by that is our society is creating men without any physical fortitude and then yet we expect of them things like enterprise, hardworkingness, virtue, and other virtues. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. And obviously what he means is that we, we, we show contempt or we pay lip service for these virtues, and yet then we're surprised to find that we're, we're uh, living in a society full of weasels and chicken shits. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. In other words, we neuter our men. We shame them. We dishonor them. We beat them down, deny them their identity, strip them of what makes them men. And then... We expect them to just perform, you know, and I was reading, I think there was an article in uh, one of the British uh, tabloids or or journals, some article about um, there are some professional women in the UK complaining about the lack of available men or the lack of dating prospects. And the article had all these statistics in it about how, you know, women now are uh, composing higher and higher percentages of the professional degrees. They've entered the workforce. They're competing directly with men. They're taking the jobs that men used to occupy. And these types of social changes are going to, the effects of these social changes are going to be felt in one way or another. You know, you can't just re-engineer society and expect not to have results and consequences And some of those consequences are found in this article where you see these uh, young, these girls, a lot of them are not young, they're in their 30s or sometimes even 
older, complaining about the, quote, lack of intelligent men, lack of available men. Well, you know, someone like me reading that, you know, I say to myself, well, okay, you know, you want to complain about that, but why not look at what society is doing? You know, we are, everywhere you turn, men are being uh, uh, criticized, shamed, denigrated, marginalized. His aggressive and enterprising instincts are, he's told that uh, those are somehow harmful or evil or bad. Uh, he's not allowed to organize amongst his fellows in groups. He's told that he's uh, uh, something wrong with him for doing that, something evil about doing that. And so, and then you combine that with the uh, the technological changes that have gone on in society with the shift away from manual labor type jobs to this uh, office drone culture that we have now. And it's a recipe for the the ongoing uh, effeminacy, effeminization of, of men, of Western men at least. And these are serious consequences that the... Uh, the establishment will do anything to avoid talking about anything to avoid talking about this and you know part of me thinks well look these are the this is the society that you you wanted you chose this you did everything possible to create this and now some of these consequences are going to have to be accepted and I put out a tweet today, actually, and it says, and it's the, actually right now, it's the leading tweet at the top of my feed. It's a, it has an artwork on there of wolves fighting each other, which I think is very appropriate. And the tweet says, the masculine virtues decline in times of wealth, luxury, and ease. The ferment of social decomposition gives rise to effeminacy and vice. Order and discipline de degenerate into chaos. At this stage, the revival of the masculine virtues is necessary and inevitable. And I would have been able to explain more if I had had more room on that in that tweet. But what I meant by this is that I'm making reference to a recurring pattern of history, a recurring pattern of history where societies become wealthy, affluent, and comfortable. And this wealth, this affluence, this comfort creates... Corruption, moral corruption, degeneracy, ease, soft living. And the society no longer sees the need to maintain its moral fiber, its external defenses, and its need for good leadership. Okay, so I'm not just blaming one sector. I'm not just blaming one person or one group or one this or one that. It's the whole society's fault in many ways. It's the whole society's fault because men, you know, lest anyone think that I'm absolving men of responsibility in this. I'm not. Absolutely not. Some of the most biggest promoters of this effeminacy and degeneracy are men. In fact, the biggest promoters, the biggest enemies of masculinity today are actually men, if you can believe that, if that makes any sense. The biggest enemies of healthy positive masculinity today are men by pushing the social agendas that are in place by unrelentingly shaming people who try to push against 
that tide. And by creating this environment, by promoting this environment for their own selfish gains, and that's really what it comes down to. It comes down to selfishness. It comes down to greed. They know that if they can trumpet the party line, they know that if they can mouth the platitudes of the era, that they will get the, the crumbs from the table. They, they know that they'll get the scraps from the table. They know that. It's about money, opportunity, influence. It's about power. That's what it is. And they don't care what the results are. They don't care of how that is affecting the polity, the civic polity as a whole, the nation as a whole. They don't care. So that when the society is faced with an existential threat, and in the old days it was very clear. You, you, had, you had armies appearing on your border. And if you didn't have strong defenses, you were going down. You were going under. You were going down, period. The, um, when the Mongols uh, invaded the Middle East, when the Mongols uh, sacked Baghdad, the Abbasid Caliphate in, in 1253, that was a direct result of the Abbasids' neglect of their frontier defenses, their national defense, their greed, indolence, sloth. And this is not just that empire. There's many empires that have shared this fate. Moral corruption. Moral corruption. And I've talked about this over and over and over again. So if you haven't been paying attention, you need to start paying attention because it's a theme that runs through a great deal of what I write about. And you can find it even in, in, uh, in my most recent translation, Sallust. I make a point of highlighting his concerns with the moral corruption and the depravity that he saw in his day that he felt was undermining the security of the Republic. And he was right. He was right. The elites, the ruling classes, those who had the influence, the power, and the money, they gave themselves over to moral turpitude, to corruption, and to a desire to enrich themselves at the expense of everyone else. And that's what we're seeing today. And I talked about that previously in some of my podcasts. I mean, it, 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 it takes many forms. No sector of society is really exempt from it. You know, we talked about it with the Plutocratic Insurgency podcasts, and we've talked about it in literary form in other ways. But it's a real concern. And the only way that a society can reinvigorate itself or restore its respect or its understanding for the masculine virtues is when it comes close to losing big in a big way. There has to be some external shock. Frankly, you have to hit rock bottom. You have to really be punished in a very, very clear way. And it's sad because we would like to avoid that. But, you know, we're headed for a rendezvous with disaster here if, if things keep going as they are. But we will continue to say our piece and to 
highlight these issues because nobody else is. Or if they are, they are uh, not being taken up by the mainstream for obvious reasons. Because they profit from the corruption and the decay. And be, frankly, because discipline, discipline and virtue, it takes effort. It takes sacrifice. It's not fun. It's not fun. It's not meant to be fun. Okay, life is not about fun, having fun, jumping from one fun thing to another. Anyone who tells you any differently is doing you a real disservice. Life is not about having fun, skiing down a slope with a grin on your face. That's not what life is about. It's not what, not, not what it's all about. There are fun portions of it. There are times when you can have fun. But frankly, most of life is doing things you don't want to do. And you need to get that. You need to understand that. Because many people in this society have been fed a lot of bullshit about how you're entitled to happiness, like it's some sort of birthright. You're not. Are not. Okay. So those are my thoughts on that. And what I want to do now is move to reading my most recent article on QCurtius.com, which I think highlights and brings out some of these issues here. And this piece is called On the Solitary Life. On the Solitary Life. The scholar Petrarch once secured an audience with the Holy Roman Emperor Charles IV, who lived from 1316 to 1378. His meeting with the Emperor at Lombardy in 1354 is described in one of Petrarch's luminous letters, Familiaris 19.3. It was a charming custom of those days that kings and popes would occasionally seek out men of letters for the purpose of philosophical inquiry. Perhaps kings preferred to talk with scholars because they were removed from the concerns of power and could speak with a frankness that was lacking with the royal ministers and advisers. Charles first asked Petrarch about the progress of one of his books, a tome entitled De Viris Illustribus, or Lives of Famous Men. Petrarch informed him that it was still a work in progress, but that he would send the emperor a copy once it was finished. I promise that you will have it, Caesar, if your valor approves itself, and my life is spared. Petrarch somewhat insolently told him. By this he meant that the emperor would have to deserve the book by virtue of his good deeds, and that it would be sent provided that Petrarch's advancing years did not degrade his writing faculties. He then went on to say, in words that could have been spoken by Cicero, these words, As for you, Caesar, you will know yourself to be worthy of this gift, and of a book bearing such a title, when you shall be distinguished not in name only, and by the possessions of a diadem, insignificant in itself, but also by your deeds, and when, by the greatness of your character, you shall have placed yourself upon a level with the illustrious men of the past, you must so live that posterity shall read of your great deeds as you read of those of the ancients. Would that our modern leaders might hear and implement these words, but that is a subject for a different place. It might be expected that such impertinent talk to an emperor would be met with hostility or dismissal. But Charles readily accepted Petrarch's counsel and took it in stride. 
The scholar then presented the emperor with some ancient Roman gold and silver coins. He told the emperor that he must not only learn about the deeds and attitudes of the great men stamped on the precious metals, he must strive to emulate their example in his own life. As he presented the coins to Charles, he gave a brief summary of the lives of each of the figures on the coins. Petrarch reports that Charles was delighted with this dialogue and pressed the Italian scholar for more information. He asked to hear of Petrarch's life history, his favorite anecdotes, and of his future plans. When it came to the future, Petrarch confessed his momentary uncertainty. He told the emperor that, despite his best intentions, he had been unable to bring his work to the state of perfection that he would have liked. He was finding it difficult, he candidly admitted, to break free from the bad habits of the past. Charles tried to be more specific. What I would like to know, sir, is what type of life pleases you best? On this subject, Petrarch was well equipped to answer. He told the emperor that it was the life of solitude that pleased him most. For him, such a life was superior to any that could result from a life of public attention. The forests and mountains called him, as did his literary work, and this was what mattered to him most. But here the emperor smiled and said, All this I well know, and have intentionally led you step by step, by my questions, to this confession. While I agree with many of your opinions, I must deprecate this notion of yours. So here a stimulating debate arose between these two great men, one a man of letters, the other a man of temporal power. Petrarch warned Charles not to attempt to debate him on this subject, for he believed he would easily be able to demolish the monarch's pretensions. Nevertheless, Charles decided to engage, and the two of them sparred. Petrarch pronounced him a worthy adversary, and each of them left the playing field believing himself the victor. This is always the sign of a successful debate, and the two of them parted on amicable terms. No doubt Petrarch detailed the merits of a life of peace and solitude. These were subjects he had touched on in his memoir, My Secret Book. What is the use of having a family solely for the purpose of procreation? If it is for the vain hope of, quote, being remembered, we should think again because we may be disappointed. Do any of us remember the names and deeds of our own great-grandfathers or great-great-grandfathers? No. Why then should we think our remote descendants will remember us? Is it not true that what live forever are great deeds and virtue, rather than human beings who may or may not be worthy of remembrance? Should not posterity judge us by our accomplishments? The world is a hurricane of anxieties, torments, and disappointments, Petrarch may, might have added. Our vanity will not save us either for the body withers and declines in time. He quotes Juvenal, Book 10, Section 172, who reminds us with his usual brutality, Mors sola fatetur quantula sint hominum corpuscula, and this means, only death discloses how pathetic are the bodies of men. Celebrate your body now, my friend, 
but know that those who see you in death will have a very different impression of your glorious musculature. Chasing after spoils and honors is ultimately futile. The only lasting satisfaction, satisfaction, Petrarch would have said, is to be found in the life of moral rectitude. He was a disciple of Cicero in the marrow of his bones. Petrarch tells us that he accompanied the emperor as he left Milan and proceeded to Piacenza. At this point, a Tuscan soldier recognized Petrarch and took him by the hand. The soldier then turned to the emperor and said, Sire, this is the man whom I have often told you about. If you accomplish great deeds, he will allow your name to be forgotten. He will not allow your name to be forgotten. Otherwise, he will know when to speak and when to keep silent. Assuming this anecdote is true, and I have no reason to doubt it, it is meant as a sly reminder from Petrarch that historians and scholars will have the last word with regard to whether a ruler is remembered favorably or unfavorably by posterity. But is it really true that the life of solitude is best? I tend to think that we must first ask what we mean by solitude. For if solitude be a stubborn withdrawal from the affairs of society and a timid retreat into an isolated hermitage, that I must confess that I am no proponent of the solitary life. To me, such a life seems to be no life at all. It is nothing less than a negation of life. Cicero never advocated such a reticent course. He was a patriot and a man of public affairs. He was constantly interested in the hustle and flow of events and could not help involving himself in them as he saw it. I will not condemn those who see this differently, for every man must find his own path, and what is right for me cannot be imposed on another without offending nature. It is only that I think a man's ability has some responsibility to contribute to his society's collective betterment. The man of ability should strive to do what he can to right the wrongs he sees within the scope of the powers given to him by fortune. He should relish the solitude and peace that comes from a reward of a job well done, but the satisfaction of solitude should be earned through the accomplishment of good works. This seems to me the better way of evaluating the question. In this regard, I find a certain anecdote of Boccaccio to be relevant. In his Lives of Famous Women, he tells us about a woman named Busa, who was from the town of Canossa. She seems to have led a solitary life, when the Roman army was catastrophically defeated at Cannae by Hannibal, a panic took hold in the army. Defeated remnants of the army were in confusion and despair. Boccaccio says that Busa took it upon herself to act as an angel of mercy to many of the de- despairing soldiers. She comforted them, dressed their wounds, opened her house and estate to them for recuperation, and showed them tender mercies in their hour of need. No one commanded her to do this. No one forced her to do this. She took it upon herself to perform this singular act of mercy. She even gave some of them money when they left her estate. In evaluating her actions, Boccaccio reckons them as greater than the the feats of largesse performed by Alexander the Great. For him, it was nothing to give away what he could never, never use himself. But Busa gave away what was hers and what she herself needed. Alexander gave to acquire and secure his reputation, but she gave because it was in her nature. 
Busa, he says, deserved more glory for his selfless acts than did Alexander. And this is how it seems to me also. The solitary life can redeem itself only if it permits those who practice it to contribute honorably to their fellows. If it cannot do this, of what use is it? Were we born to live our lives in seclusion behind bolted doors and snarling suspicions? Or were we created for the purpose of achieving great deeds and overcoming insurmountable obstacles? Our bodies are transitory and ephemeral, and there will be nothing but desiccated husks in due course. But our actions will live forever and will in time be weighed by fortune's scales. And this is what Sallust meant when he said in the opening paragraph of his monograph, Catiline, that masculine virtue is pure and eternal. And so that's the end of that article. And I'll just say a few more thoughts on these subjects. You know, we're living at a time when it's very, very difficult to be a traditional man and to practice or to find affirmation of the traditional masculine virtues in the West. Everywhere you look, someone is trying to take that away from you, trying to deny that, trying to tell you that it's not important, that it doesn't matter, that you should just be a good little slave, a good little consumer slave, and just get back on the treadmill. This is not a strategy for long-term social survival with the way things are going. And it's important to build your own ark, to build your own ark, to build your own fortress, to build your own fortress of the mind so that you can sustain these shocks, these hurricanes, these tempests, these tornadoes that are inevitably coming. How soon we don't know. We do not know. But history tells us that you can't just embrace complete lack of values and a complete lack of discipline in a society and just keep saying that that's okay and that everything is going to just work out. It's not. It's not. And maybe that's the price that we have to pay. Maybe that's the price that we have to pay for the many, many decades of wealth, indolence, ease, and frankly, irresponsibility that have been a feature of our public life and social life for so long. No one can see all ends, but we certainly can make predictions and we can certainly prepare based on those predictions. So educate yourself, continue to read, study, learn aggressively, Don't ever let anyone denigrate you or put you down. Don't ever allow anyone to try to take away your right to be informed, your right to be educated, because that's the only thing that separates us from the beasts. And on that note, I'll end tonight. I'm Quintus Curtius. Good night.